Creative Babble. Peter Pan Syndrome. It's when someone refuses to grow up. It's not a disease or a recognized mental disorder. It's just a state of mind. But of course, there's some serious consequences when an adult tries to live in a fantasy life. Today's story is about one man who escaped to his very own Neverland. And in the process, he had to assume a new identity. I got a tip for this story from my friend Drew. He told me to meet him and some person named Nicole at a vegan restaurant in downtown Raleigh. (laughs) What on earth do I order at a vegan restaurant? And who is this Nicole person I'm about to meet? So many questions. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, so I picked the yuppiest form of transportation to get to this vegan restaurant. I hopped on one of those electric scooters parked on the sidewalk outside my office. What a douche. I dodged some potholes and I avoided being hit by oncoming traffic. Twice. Not too bad. I didn't bring my recording gear with me because this was just a meeting, not an official interview. But I still wanted to record our conversation. So sorry I'm late. No problem, dude. How's it going? Did you burn down here? Yeah. Um, just water for me. So I turned on my phone recording app. Who's first? Go for it. I'll go for it. Uh, the chopped salad. I'm gonna do under the volcano. No onion. I'll try the the vegan uh, black bean burger. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. We exchanged pleasantries, but honestly, guys, I didn't write here on an electric scooter for some small talk. So I asked Nicole to start from the beginning. It was right before spring break, and uh, I got a call. They're like, "Can you come home?" And I was like. It was March 16th, 1998. Nicole was in college when her life suddenly took on a very bizarre turn. Nicole's father, Larry Douglas Jones, vanished without a trace. No one saw it coming. There were so many questions. Was he dead? Did someone kidnap him? Did he just go fishing and just not tell anyone? Nicole remembers a family gathering at her grandmother's house, trying to make sense of her father's sudden disappearance. It was like a funeral. Like the kid, me and my two, I have twin brothers, little brothers, Bart and Brett. And so me and Bart and Brett were just kind of hanging out in the den and like watching cartoons and all the adults were sort of in the living room. And it was very sort of somber. Like we didn't know what's going on. So what happened that day? Larry Douglas Jones worked at a convenience store in Cary, North Carolina, a suburb of Raleigh. Here's how Nicole remembers the story. So one of the regulars came in like way early, five o'clock in the morning, always came in to get coffee every morning. We walked in and all the coffee was made and everything was turned on. But the register was open and there was like uh, paper receipts for like the, the bank vault or something thrown across the floor. And so they called the cops. The cops get there and the security tape had been gone and his car was gone. Thousands of dollars were missing from the register. That's not exactly chump change. And just to paint a picture, I live near Cary, North Carolina. This isn't exactly a dangerous part of town. It's the kind of place you want to raise a family. It's safe and pretty boring. All the houses are a different shade of beige. (laughs) You have the eggshell houses, the off-white colored houses, the taupe houses. Lots of variety. Nothing ever happens in Cary. It's a terrible place for true crime podcasters to live. So if this were some kind of heist or kidnapping, well, that would be shocking. The 
the first assumption was that somebody had come in and robbed the place and then kidnapped them. So then there was like this big manhunt. Like they were like, let's go search the fields and the roads and look for his car. The police took this very seriously. Usually when someone goes missing, they're easy to track down through credit card transactions, but not Larry. Larry didn't own a credit card. While police searched for Larry throughout the state of North Carolina, investigators decided to look at his home for clues. They asked my mom a bunch of questions. Was anything missing in the house? And, you know, nothing that she had noticed. Like, you know, there was stuff there. All of his closet had clothes in it, all that sort of thing. If Larry was planning to leave, he would have packed, right? There would be things missing. But then, after looking a little closer, Nicole's mom did realize that maybe something was missing after all. Later, down the line, it was like, oh, his really expensive fishing gear, which is the only thing he cared about, was bass fishing, really. Like, bass fishing and golf, and his golf clubs were gone, and they were like, oh, wait a minute. And then they found out, like, the oil thing, and they were like, oh, well, this is probably, he just stayed. Right, it wasn't a kidnapping. Larry Jones wasn't kidnapped. He just picked up and left without telling anyone. But wait, what about the convenience store? What about all the cash missing from the register? What about the surveillance tape? It was gone. If Larry did this, he must have taken the cash and ran. And taking that much money is definitely a crime. If he's not the victim, then that means he's a fugitive. But why run? Nicole said that her father was on the run for two years before he resurfaced. Where did he go? How did he get caught? How could he just leave his wife and three kids behind? I'm gonna find Larry Jones and ask him myself. Nicole had so many questions about her father's disappearance. How was he able to survive for so long undetected? I told her that in order to find out, I would need to talk with Larry myself. This is my friend Andrew. You gotta get him to tell the story because he's the only one that was actually there. I, I feel like you have nothing to lose with me contacting him. Yeah, yeah, You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Because it's not you asking him, it's me, right? Yeah. And I wouldn't and I wouldn't contact him like, hey, so you tried to pick your own kidnapping. Right. I would like, you know, kind of ease my way into that. You said you're ready for dessert? I don't think no, so. I don't but I wouldn't tell him what we tried to do. Yeah. And let's see if he opens up. Right. Yeah, um, I yeah I would be uh, willing to do that. Um, like I said, we don't talk too often, so it might take me a little bit to get get it get a hold of it. Nicole agrees to talk to her father about this the next time they meet. You see, after this whole ordeal, their relationship has never been the same. They hardly ever call each other, and none of us at this vegan restaurant are confident that he will agree to any of this. After all. Who wants to air their dirty laundry on a podcast? I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. This season, I'm going to talk to three different fugitives, each with their own unique story, to find out how they get away with living off the grid while pretending to be someone else. Before I find Larry Jones, 
I meet up again with Nicole and her brother Bart at a coffee shop in Raleigh. I wanted to learn more about what happened from their point of view. This is Bart Jones. He was 16 when this happened. Daddy has been a moron his entire life. His entire life is, is a series of moronic decisions one after the next. At first, it appeared that Larry Jones was kidnapped. And even after some suspicious signs, the family was still in denial. One of my dad's very best friends called my mom randomly out of blue some period of time after all of this happened and asked my mom, do you think that he did this instead of it, it being done to him? And my mom, I remember talking to her, her saying, why would you say something like that? I, first of all, what would lead you to believe that? And second of all, do you know something you're not sharing with anybody? Because they interviewed everybody. And so he asked that. And my mom was extremely dismissive of it. In fact, I think she was very hurt about the, the whole idea. Because I think it, the, I think the one thing she was clutching to was the optimism that this was a tragic set of events that we all were victim to. Um, not the victim of uh, a ludicrous hoax. My mom actually went and looked at his his clothes because my dad, the way that my dad had staged his clothing, his jeans and all of that stuff in the closet, he had pushed everything to the front of the closet. So it looked like nothing had been disturbed. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, after she took the time, after she digested that and finally decided to look on her own, there was a lot of clothes missing. So I, I think that cemented in her mind what had happened, um, they, they located my dad's truck. And I remember hearing either secondhand or from the news that it was so far down in the woods and covered up and obscured that the tow truck operator that went to go pull the truck out had to literally walk a battery down there. And the doors were locked with the keys in and the ignition on, and it was completely covered up by brush and a tarp, like a, a, um, a fatigue or like a camo-style tarp. I had to know, what happened? How did he resurface? When he turned himself in, that all happened without us. At no point, like, during that whole process, did he call us or pick up the phone or try to initiate any contact. So it was like, oh, well, he just did this because... You know, he had to to keep from going to jail. That happened, and it, and we just kind of continued with our lives, and there was no effort made to kind of communicate with us at that point. And the feelings were mutual. Larry's kids, well, they felt betrayed and hurt. So after their father returned, they wanted nothing to do with him. But one day, Larry showed up unexpectedly to Thanksgiving dinner. So that... that First time you saw him must have been like really awkward, yeah. right? To it say the least. It was extremely awkward. So <laughs> I'm assuming you guys probably didn't talk about the incident. Oh, no, no, not, not, it, there was never a discussion about any of that. So typically the way, the way that happened on a sit down for Thanksgiving or Christmas is this big feast, a line of food, everybody says grace and then they get in line. And traditionally, because Brett and I were growing adolescents at the time, we would eat a lot of food so so the thing is we were supposed to fall in the back of the line so that everybody else had a chance to get the food that was, that was, that was just a rule for you bart not brett okay. it was bart that, that, that may, was bart's particular rule that may be very well true anyhow i remember my dad taking the liberty and saying make sure you get in the back of the line or joking okay, to some to something some element like that and that actually extremely 
um, upset me, and not because it wasn't factual, but, uh, you know, what gives you the right to address me directly or even fall in like you know what normal business or normal procedure is? You've been gone so long. How do you, what gives you the right to feel like you're allowed to even comment on it? But over time, they did talk about it. You know, the incident. But it was awkward and tense. Yes, my dad and I had a actual sit-down conversation about this and his motivation and his motives and what caused him to get to that point. I actually don't have a single word's worth of recollection of that entire process. Um, it is completely blacked out of my mind. So let's go back to the day of the disappearance. Here's Bart again. It was March 16th, 1998. The, the way that all of this happened was there was a, a, a female police officer, a Cary police officer, who came in every single morning to get coffee before her shift started. So, and she knew normal operating procedure in the morning. So she went outside to make sure he wasn't out there working on one of the pumps or smoking a cigarette or whatever. Then she went back in the office and she said there was a mess in the office, but he wasn't in there. The officer knew something was wrong. And she saw that the safe was open. There were checks all over the floor. Like she said, the, the security tape, VCR or whatever device they were using was open and that his gun was gone because she knew that he kept a pistol behind behind the counter. So it it appeared like it was a normal business day that went completely awry. And of course, his truck was gone. This was no longer business as usual. This was a crime scene. The evening before he disappeared, there were three robberies in the area, in the, in, the in the direct locale of my father's store. Because of that, it was a lot more real for everybody else involved. I mean, it was a real robbery and kidnapping. I think when we first heard the news, um, I, was, I was down there and I can't remember who called, if it was my mom or if it was whoever. We didn't really know what was going on. We just heard he was missing and there was, we were watching the news coverage, but we went to my mother's uh, parents' house. And I remember vividly being in um, fifth period. It was right after uh, lunch. And I remember the principal coming in. So the band director stopped us, Bart. Brett, put your instruments up and, and grab your bags. You're going with Mr. Ludwig. So we're we're walking to his office and he's not saying a word. And I'm like, man, what the fuck is going on? We are really in fucking trouble, man. So we get to his office and he's like, have a seat. And I'm like, oh man, now we're really in trouble. He picks up the phone without saying a word. He dials a number and a Little at that time did I know that it was my mom on the other line, and all he said, his exact words were, they are here. Like, he handed me the phone, and she was on the other end, and she was like, your dad is missing. And I was like, what? We were just sort of sitting around and watching the news, and then when the news would get too much, we'd turn the TV off, and I felt like people were bringing food over, and, and yeah, exactly, talking, yeah, the pastor came by to talk to us, and we just didn't know, like, what the whole, uh, what was going on. I mean, we didn't have any information, so it looked like he had been kidnapped and that was kind of the first the first thing was like oh this, this friendly store owner got kidnapped and we got to find him and so um, but i mean you're laughing now but at the time did you i mean did you think he was kidnapped like I, what what kind so, of it was so crazy like i was just like what what like it did nothing made more sense than the other i didn't really have the sense that 
because I can't believe the audacity of somebody being like, oh, I'm going to stage my own disappearance. Like, it didn't make sense logically to me that it would be like, oh, this is, he just was going to leave. Reaching out to Larry wasn't going to be easy. Everything had to go just right in order for me to contact him. I first met up with Nicole at the vegan restaurant in late September. She told me that since he resurfaced, he only shows up to Thanksgiving dinner once every four years. Maybe then she could ask him if I could contact him. It was a gamble. Lucky for us, Larry showed up to Thanksgiving dinner this year. Nicole explained to him that a writer wanted to learn more about his life story. And to everyone's surprise, he agreed to talk. So I called him up and arranged a day to meet him. The only problem is, he lives 800 miles away in Gulfport, Mississippi. But I couldn't resist. I had to go find out for myself why he ran away. When we come back, I'm going to fly down to Gulfport, Mississippi and meet Larry Douglas Jones. When I landed, I got in my rental car and plugged in Larry's address. But for some reason, I just couldn't find the house. I'm gonna go see Larry. In 800 feet, turn right, then your destination will be on the left. Hey, Javier. Hey, Larry. How's it going, man? I'm I'm uh, driving around, and you were right. It is kind of confusing because I don't. Let me see. Look, uh, you in a little gray car? Yeah, do you see me? Let me yeah, see. yeah, right, come right. back down that street. Uh, I'm the red house. It'll be on your right. There's no houses on the left. All right. A little red house. Oh, I see it. I see him. I see him. Is that him? How's it going, man? So I must have just passed you. <laughs> I told you it was confusing. Yeah. How's it going, man? <laughs> Pretty good. good to nice meet to meet you. Sorry, I have my Come on in the house. Yeah. Larry lives in a red wooden ranch-style house about five minutes from the ocean. We walked to his backyard when I noticed this giant live oak covered in Spanish moss. It was pretty spectacular. That's an awesome tree, by the way. Hey, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> Can I take a look at that? That's yeah. Neat. Come on. That's an old tree. I'm guessing it's over 200 years old. There's a lot. We go back inside, and Larry just jumps right in. I wasn't real ambitious. I went to college, but nothing. I enjoyed life and didn't want to have the trouble of being responsible for something. And I just kind of went through life. And uh, then as I got older and got kids to provide for them and uh, I don't know it, 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 things got a little complicated and uh, if I had to say I had a mental breakdown I, I don't know what happened I just woke up that I was going down the highway getting out of there I was in a daze for probably three weeks and then as I started to come out I didn't do nothing but sleep all day I got in a little flea bag hotel or motel down this, uh, about four miles down 90. Uh, and I stayed there for almost a year, and it was like $55 a week. And the only comfort I had in life at that time was my fishing. I've always enjoyed fishing. And when I hit here and about 
three weeks after I got here, I bought a little pole and went out here on the water, and I couldn't believe how good fishing was. I kind of put things behind me. I had something to get up in the morning for. I got up every morning at 5 o'clock and went fishing every day of the week. I stopped at this restaurant on the way back to my little motel and talked to the uh, owner there and was telling him how much fish I was catching. He said, well, won't you bring some of them to me and sell them to me? And I said, sure. All I do is give them away, and it was. I, I couldn't eat them all. And I found out that I could make easily $200, $300 a week fishing, catching fish and selling them. And I lived for about three years just catching fish and selling them to the fish markets and individual restaurants like that. Uh, it wasn't much, but it was enough to pay the rent and eat, so... Wouldn't it be lovely if you can leave all your problems behind and go fishing? You wouldn't have to worry about your mortgage, paying for your kid's college, gas in your car. Instead, you can walk away and live the simple life. So then I said, well, I can get a commercial license and I can sell them anywhere. If I'm going to go that step, I need to get a little boat to go out there because you can catch a little more out of a boat. than I was catching these fish off the beach off the piers and stuff at the beach. But the simple life was just a facade. At night, when everything was quiet, his past kept creeping back. About two years later, when the fishing kind of, at first it distracted me from everything, it kind of wore off and my feelings were coming back about missing family and everything. That's when I just broke down and called home. I just caved in and had to call the family and, and tell them, you know, I screwed up. I don't know what happened, but it was me doing it. Didn't nobody make me do it. I did it, and I, and I don't know how I did it. I would have been the last one to tell you I could was even capable of just up and leaving. But I did it, and... Uh, I miss everybody, and I want to come see you. And they said, well, come on, and I was there the next day. <laughs> I asked Larry, why did you do it? Why did you leave your family behind? Was he having troubles with his wife? He said it wasn't like that. His family wasn't the problem. He said his primary motivation for running was strictly all financial. It, it didn't happen one day. It was probably a year to six months in the making that, uh, you know, I, my business was failing. I was losing money. Larry wasn't the owner of the gas station. He leased a convenience store from the oil company. What, was it like a typical gas station where you walk in and it's like chips and sodas? Or was it, um, like, describe it? A convenience it. store, yeah. With, I sold cigarettes, uh uh, canned food items, stuff like that, uh, drink cooler, beer, soft drinks, uh, and a lot of gas, so a lot of gas. I would sell gas all weekend. It was a very lucrative store. I should have made a lot of money at it. But anyway, the oil company provided the gas, and I paid them every Monday morning. I'd get a little bit behind and have to, I had a thing with the bank that I could go up to 10000 over, so 
I did that a couple of times, and that was getting behind. And then uh, had several people at the oil company, and uh, the guy that owned it was telling me, well, your employees are, are robbing you blind. And I wouldn't believe it because, I don't know, I was a poor manager. Were they, like, threatening, like, saying, hey, where's my oh, money? No, no. 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 But, but you felt I had, like— I had a meeting with them a couple of— Three months before that, where I was getting behind, and and Don uh, Stevenson was the uh, president of the oil company, and and that's what he he called me and he said I'm just concerned you're doing all that business you should be making more money, and and you know that's where it come from somebody's taking that money. I was working sixty seventy hours a week. And over a six months period, I just gradually just kept getting behind a little more, a little more, and a little more. And like I say, that morning I went in, did the books, and just said, the heck with it, I'm out of here. You know, I come up $10,000 more short, and I'm going, you know, I, I, can't, I can't keep this up. And they, like I say, I don't know if it was a breakdown, what it was, but I just hit the road, didn't even know what road I was going on. I didn't know where I was going. I just got in the truck and drove off and started driving. This road looks good. I went down it, went down another one, you know, absolutely not knowing where I was going. And like I say, I just thought about, well, the Gulf of Mexico. I'll go down there. You know, I won't see it. So I had a bicycle. I didn't even have a vehicle. I rode my bicycle. What happened to the car you had? I left it uh, in Kentucky. I went to Paducah, Kentucky, and uh, got a bus ticket from there to Gulfport. I looked at the map and saw Gulfport on it, and I said, "Why, why didn't you take your car with you?" Well, I figured you know they would be looking for me at, with the license plate and stuff. And uh, I just left it up there. Oh, so you figured they're, they're probably looking for you. Well, I knew they'd be looking for me. Did you take all the money from the, or did you like trash a store or anything? No, I didn't trash a store. I did take what money I had there, which was like only Saturday and Sunday's receipts. All my other stuff was deposited all week. I, I made a deposit every day. So all I had was like Saturday and Sunday's maybe four or five thousand dollars that's how much i would do over a weekend and uh i took that put it in my pocket and, and walked out the door but i had the whole store stocked with stock and stuff i said well they just sell all that and break even I'll, i'm out of here i'm taking this and i'm leaving they didn't I, see the logic of like hey you well, got the rest of the store you know it didn't balance out right. like i had it figured in my head according to them you know, I think we all have that moment in our lives where we're like, you know, we don't even think about it. You know, we just have this like fantasy, like, let's just go. You know what I mean? Just go. Yeah, run from it. That, that's exactly what I was doing was running away from it. Yeah, like yeah. we fantasize about it, but like you actually did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thought had been in my mind a couple of times. Uh, even way before that, maybe even years before it even got to that point. 
uh, you know, like you say, think about just go and see another part of the world. It's got to be better somewhere else, yeah. you know. It's like it's a duo. I I enjoyed life. Had plenty of friends. uh, Had jobs. It it won't like I was poor or desperate or anything. Uh, It was just always looking for something else. Do you think if you would have really like sat down and thought about it, would you have done it? Oh no, uh, -uh. no, absolutely not. I don't think I would have. I'm telling you what, I remember the day I was back there doing the books, and when that last number come up short, I just, I said, that's it. I'm out of here. And I said, there ain't no way. I cannot keep doing this. I'm going to kill myself. I actually thought about that more than that day. I'd thought about that a few days before. But I didn't want to die. I enjoyed life. Yeah. But what, what fascinates me about this story and now knowing that you really didn't even have a plan is that, like, how do you live, you know, not it's almost like a double life, right? Like, how do you live like a second life without a plan? Because it takes a lot of like, um, it takes a lot of uh, coordination. I had thrown my driver's license away. I didn't even have a I had a license when I was in North Carolina, but I didn't have it with me. I don't remember if I left it there. I throwed it away. I don't even know. I didn't have it. But the laws weren't that strict down here. You could just go in, write, fill out a form, your name, and sign it, and get a fishing license. So right. that's what I did. Do you ever think about, hey, should I come back? <laughs> or, like, do I keep running? Uh yeah, yeah, I thought about coming back. The whole time you're gone, people think you got kidnapped. I don't know where they came up with that, you know, because I'll tell you where they came up from. They couldn't believe that I was capable of that either. They And I didn't. That's what I say. It It, it had to be something mental to cause me to leave. So there was like a media circus. Like you didn't know any of that. I didn't know any of that. I really did. That that's what I found out later. After I made contact back with them, they showed me all the news articles and stuff, and I knew my family was going to be just devastated. Uh, but I had absolutely no idea it would alert the general public. Like, but here's the crazy part. This isn't even the first time a member of the Jones family has disappeared. My grandfather, which I met one time, he uh, he did the same thing. He left my dad and his six sisters and my grandmother, and uh, he just went and moved out of state and remarried and had another family. And uh, I, that didn't really, I, I didn't think about that, though. That, that didn't have nothing to do with it. After the fact, I thought about it. But I, that won't end my mind at all when I, I did it. Larry's little fishing rendezvous was coming to an end. It, the fishing kind of, you know, suppressed all those bad thoughts and everything, so I didn't have to think about it got to the point that it didn't 
I'd done it so much then, it didn't pacify me, and those thoughts were coming back, wonder what they're doing, wonder what they're doing, and I know they all hate me, and, you know, all that just keeps going through your mind and everything, and it was just like, I guess I'm just weak-minded. I caved in to my mind to leave, and I caved in my, to my mind to go back. You know, like like you said, you weren't thinking about it when you did it, and then you realize, damn, my whole family, right? Yeah, it's gone. Oh yeah, that that's what broke me. I'm telling you, it it went from like I say, I was in a daze for three weeks, then fishing pacified it because I went every day. I got going fishing, and I didn't think about it. I just broke down one morning. And I called my brother and said, hey, you know, it's me. I mean, I can't imagine getting that phone call, right? Like, Yeah, I, he, he couldn't either. He cried as much as I did. What did he say? Did he ask you anything? No. When you coming home? I think that's all he asked me. When you coming home? And I said, the next day or two, as soon as I can get there. Uh, and I said, I'm calling Mama right when I hang up from you. I didn't contact the kids because Nicole wanted to wait and give it a little time to talk to me. Bart, he wanted to talk to me immediately. And Brett, I talked to him, and he was in California at that time living out there, and uh, he couldn't get out this way and all, so... But remember, Larry can't just come home and pretend none of this ever happened. He broke the law, and he was charged with two charges of embezzlement, totaling more than $33,000. The oil company, like I say, uh, they sued me for that money that I owed them. After I'd gone back and, and faced all that, the police said there were no charges and all that. They decided that after I got back up there. And I went and, and met with the guy and told him, I said, I, you know, I don't care. You can put down anything you want. I'll take care. I'll, I'll face up to it and, and own up to it and plead guilty to it, whatever. And did, and did, how much did you end up having to pay back? Uh, the 24000 Is it done? You're- it's done. Done deal. It was done before I left up there. My lawyer and and uh, got with the oil company, and they worked it out that uh, just plead guilty to it and all, pay the money back, and uh, they would expunge the record and all that. So I, I never got a felony for it. I was really surprised at how friendly and open Larry was about this whole ordeal. After all, it's been 21 years since he disappeared. I couldn't stop thinking about Larry's story. I've been there before. I mean, I would imagine you have too, right? There have been times where I wanted to run away from it all. But there are real consequences for leaving everything behind. For Larry, it was more than just the legal trouble he had to deal with. How does he repair his relationship with his kids? So I sat back down with Bart and Nicole to tell them about my meeting with their father. 
yesterday I listened to the entire interview with your dad and I pulled out certain sound bites and I'm just gonna like read through them so that you guys could react to them. Okay. 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 And I think that in the process, I think you're gonna be able to like, almost like fact check. Like he said this. All right, let me see. What struck me about him, well, and I don't know how, and I want you guys to react to this, but when I met up with you, I I had no idea that um, that he would be so open to talking right. with me. And yeah, I wasn't sure he was going to because I, I told you I thought that um, maybe he would have some sort of uh, embarrassment about the whole situation and that, you know, normal people would feel, you know, there would be some, some element of guilt or reluctance to acknowledge that. But uh, it sounds like maybe... In his in his experience, the events were 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 less traumatic or or less uh, you know terrible f for him. You know, I I am actually pretty surprised too. I feel like um, if you had asked me before all of this came about whether or not he would actually sit down, one, I felt like there was an element of in him that where he never admitted wrongdoing in this. I mean, I feel like he certainly addressed the situation and he for, he certainly talked about it. I don't feel like he ever felt like what he did was wrong. He might have feel that he had done it in a wrong way, but I still even to this day communicating with him, there was there was never I mean, there was there was talk and I guess communication of feeling guilty, but he never wore guilt as far as I could tell. Well, you know, and I got I got a mixed feel about that because I think that he recognizes that he did something illegal. Yes. Uh, like I got him to acknowledge that. But like, I, you know, talking to you guys and seeing like the pain and like how disruptive it was to your life. Like, I, I don't think at least he didn't like c communicate that to me. And like right. that, if I were you, I'd, I'd feel like. Damn, that's that's what I want you to feel bad about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but he just jumped right into it, man. Like he he basically like we did a little bit of small talk, but he's like, I think I just had a mental breakdown. Like he says, I don't know what happened. I just woke up and I just started driving and going down this highway, and I was in a daze for like weeks. And uh, I mean, you want to react? To I mean, that doesn't sound I, the amount of planning to like. Pack up your belongings, stage kind of the house, then stage the well, stage is the store. Like, where, where, how do you know? You, you, there was some thought put into this. So, all right. So, you guys know this part. This is this next part is um, kind of uh, incongruent, right? Like, like uh, his version and your version, right? Um, so, he, he says that he, he threw away his driver's license. And uh, so, he didn't have an ID. But he needed to get a fishing license. And so back in the day, you could just show up and just get an ID. And he says he used his real name. What do you guys know about that? I do know that he used, um, he had changed his name from Larry Douglas Jones to um, Larry Douglas or Douglas Jones, one or the other. He, he had eliminated one of his proper names. When I, and doing all this research on fugitives, uh, the best strategy for trying to fake your own death or like uh, trying to create a new identity is to like keep one of your real names so that you could react to that name. Okay, so then here's he goes, you know, about two years later when the fishing kind of distracted me from everything and then I kind of hit a wall and my feelings started to come back about missing my family and everything and then I just broke down and called home. 
That that I mean that's him summing it up, right? That's that's not actually what happened. I don't remember. I think somebody's. I we heard the story that the uh, the Parkway convenience store in Cary. Um, there was a veterinary uh, place right next door, and we heard that. A worker from there was on vacation with her husband in the casino down in Biloxi or in Gulfport and um, saw him and recognized him and started talking to him. And he just acted like everything was normal. And she she knew about everything that had happened next door. So she came back and reported it to police. This is one of the, the things that your dad neglected to mention, too. Yeah, is that like Yeah, the repercussions of like, so the oil company... Wants their money. So who do they go after? They went after my mom. So they they came after everything. They went after everything we owned, the house. They went after the cars. They went over after every single asset that that was tied to my dad whatsoever, even just by association. So my mom cashed in her entire 401k to hire a lawyer. The only way Bart and Nicole's mom could legally detach herself from Larry's legal trouble is to get a divorce or for Larry to die. They went with the dead option. In the state of North Carolina, seven years has to pass before you can declare somebody missing dead. A person can be declared legally dead even without finding a body. But his family could not wait seven years. It would financially cripple them. When it came back that Larry wasn't coming home, Larry's wife needed to speed up the process of declaring him dead. And I remember my mom spent everything she had to hire a lawyer to create a case so that she could declare my dad deceased so that we didn't lose absolutely everything. So she went through the legal process of declaring him dead. So legally, now he's dead. Yeah, he is, he is legally on record dead. He is deceased. Gosh. And so this is so crazy. So now you don't think he's dead. No. And, no, uh, well, like I said, um, I they found the truck. We kind of, I think when, when they found the truck in Kentucky and then the fact that it was covered up so well and all of his possessions were inside of it, the golf clubs, I think the rifle that he had. Yeah. And that stuff, it was like, oh, okay. That actually rekindled in me. Um, I, I, like I said, I was always op optimistic about the entire situation. That actually, I think, for the first time, had solidified the fact that he might actually be dead. So then we, we talked about, I mean, basically, he's like, yeah, I just had a lot of stress and I, I just wanted to run. And that, that, that's the part of the story that I think that we could all like sympathize because you get stressed out, you get stressed yeah, out, yeah, yeah. and we fantasize about running away, right. but we don't do it, right? right? And like, he actually did it, yes. you know? Like, I know you were a victim of, of his dumb decision, but, like, do you sympathize with that, though? I, let, let me give you some perspective. Absolutely not. And the reason I tell you this, not not because of what he did to me. I'm even going to so, go so far as to say not what he did to my mom, but what he did to his family. His grandfather did the exact same thing and was gone for 40 some years and him witnessing and experiencing what his father went through, especially when his granddad came back. But I, I, I can say without doubt that my, my grandfather going through that and then his lineage, his direct line doing the same thing is is unforgivable absolutely unforgivable well i mean i will say i i, I can sympathize with that i can understand um 
you know, the mindset where you feel like you don't have options. Um, I've struggled with depression most of my life, so it's it's definitely um, familiar. Kind of, you get into that that sort of echo chamber where just there's there's no alternatives. Yeah. So, if he had gone about it in a more traditional, proper manner. Hey, I can't do this anymore. This is affecting me. Or even, hey, this is too much stress. The kids, this family, the whole structure, all of my business, uh, I can't do this anymore. Had that happened, my mom would have helped him pack his stuff and kicked his ass out of the house. Divorce would have been totally an option for them, but he sort of, to me, I think he probably took the most non-confrontational way out of the situation. Do you consider your dad a selfish person? I do, I do. We've mentioned that sort of Peter Pan uh, aspect of it. Just, I just want to go fish. I don't care about these responsibilities. I just, this is the only thing that I want to do. And I, I can understand having that kind of goal and passion in your life for sure, that I'm. this is all I'm going to do. Um, but you know, you, you you make choices and you have responsibilities and you, you still have to, you still, you don't just bail on them. So that's. But here we are now and like he kind of got the ending he wanted. He got that Peter Pan life. I mean, right. So yeah. he, he's not running anymore, but he's still fishing and doing his right. thing, and, you know, do, doing his thing on his own time, his own timeline, his own set schedule. And I, I can see uh, the appeal in his lifestyle totally. Um, but uh, he sort of made the decision 18, 20 years too late. You know, you, you do that before you have you bring other people into the equation. And because it, I mean, it had very real repercussions to us. As Bart talked about earlier, this is framed how we see the world. Larry Douglas Jones may have gotten exactly what he wanted, a Peter Pan ending. But when we all think of Peter Pan, we think of the animated Disney film, where he's mischievous and free-spirited, not a care in the world. But for those who have read the actual children's book by J.M. Barry, you may describe Peter Pan as sadistic, arrogant, and selfish. When I spoke to Larry Douglas Jones, I got caught up in the romantic thought of leaving it all behind and living a simpler life. He doesn't need much and he strikes me as happy. But when I returned to Raleigh and spoke with his children, I was reminded how cruel his actions were. Like, can he even remember the last thing he said to his kids before he left? Just like the real Peter Pan, Larry's only relationship with his family is based off of convenience. He's only there for them when he needs them. I'm not saying he doesn't love or care for them. I'm just saying that his actions prove that they were not his priority. And like most con artists, Larry seems to lack the empathy to really understand the consequences of leaving everything and everyone behind. Peter Pan felt abandoned by his mother. And even though he didn't know his grandfather, Larry too witnessed firsthand the hurt when his father's father walked away. I'll leave you with one last quote from the Disney version of Peter Pan. Never say goodbye because goodbye means going away and going away means forgetting. Creative back.